this morning. I'm excited in the time that we have. Um, something that God has laid on my heart over the last week or so that I believe not only we, the country, need, we, the church, need this. And let me start this by a quotation by a pastor in the middle of the 20th century named A.W. Tozer. He said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And that is true. The most important thing about you is what you are thinking about God and that comes into your mind. The most impactful thing. And this morning, what I hope to do is let the scriptures present a slightly different but very true characteristic of God. We know of God's love, God's grace, God's holiness, many things. But there is a picture I want you to see that God has shown me through the book of Hosea. We're going to be in the book of Hosea this morning. And, and I'm challenged by this because Hosea is not a book I would ever think I would preach because I, I, there's some minor prophets that you could be a favorite and certain prophecies and things are, are interesting. And Hosea, I'm like, man, this is, that's one I just want to kind of get through when I do my Bible reading. And as we look in Hosea, we're going to cover the book but we're not going to cover this completely verse by verse. But there's a message here. And a message that I guess I want to take it for the purposes of this sermon here, for the purposes of this interaction we're having, is a question I want to give you. And that is this. What is the original source of grace? In that what is the... What is the ocean that actually powers and fuels the fountain of grace? We know that grace is like a fountain that just continues on, but with serious water pressure of an ocean that we hear written about. My question is, where does that ocean come from? Because we're not done. When we, often we sing, we think of an ocean, a fountain, and that's it. But there is a place where that ocean comes from. And that's the picture we're going to investigate and find out this morning. What fills that ocean? And I'll just give you a little bit of a, of a hint. We know what fuels God's grace. It is God's love. But there's something in the purposes of what this, this book, this author tells us. In our reality, I can only give it on the basis of our reality, meaning as, as God's creatures in the image of God responding to God and him responding to us, what fuels that? We're going to see it through the book of Hosea here this morning. And now, how, how the book of Hosea breaks, it breaks into something that's very difficult, and it's going to be difficult, not difficult intellectually. Difficult emotionally. Because the, the book, Hosea, is written by somebody who God took and said, I want your life to represent something, and I'm going to have you do something. And so he commanded Hosea to do something that would be literally uh, go into the pit of despair. I want you to do that. And it's not uncommon for God to do this. 
In the book of Ezekiel, he had Ezekiel be a sign. He even made Ezekiel to where he could not speak until his wife died. And then he could speak. Jeremiah was asked to do many signs. Wear something, throw it away, do things. Okay, those are minor things. Hosea really takes the cake here in terms of what God asks somebody to do. And so I just want to tell you this morning, it's not a parable. It's not a... Uh, a, a, a story, it's not a, an image, it's not something that, there's, a, there's a, a mythical person, it's a real event, a man walking this path. The book begins this way, and it is a picture of this question that we're talking about. And then it quickly moves to the application, which we can take then for us. This morning. So if you're ready, I want to dive into the book of Hosea. We'll be just going through some verses here in chapter 1 and some in chapter 2, and then we will get to the application. So if you're ready and your Bibles are open, we want to find out what it is that fills God's ocean because we know his ocean continues to power the fountain of God's grace. Begins in chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, and Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. This is going to be important. And the reason it's important is it sets a very particular context for us. Just to give you an idea, the word Hosea, it means salvation. From the Hebrew word to be saved, and it has an interesting perspective. It's kind of a passive causative, which would say, causing to be saved, salvation. That's the name that he was given. And he is ministering during the time of rains. Back in the Old Testament, they never know the dates. They don't give you the, at 750 B.C., they don't say that. They say, when this king reigned, and then figure your time frame from that. Events drive dates in that culture. Here, dates drive events. And he gives us the names of kings. And very specifically, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Draw a boundary around those guys. They are the kings of the south. The kings of the south were the ones who came from the tribe of Judah. The line was never broken up to that point. From David on down. And there were some good kings here, considered to be good by the, the biblical text. Uzziah and Hezekiah and Jotham for sure. Ahab, he was a bit of a problem. But the mainstay of that reign was during the times of following God. And you can read about it and what they did, and, and especially Uzziah. I mean, God made all the enemies fear him. Now, what's important, this is from about 792 all the way to 686, almost 100 years. So, obviously, Hosea didn't live that long, but about a 50, 60-year prophecy we're talking about here. And then he adds another king here. He says, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now we go to the north. This is Jeroboam 2, not the first. So we've got one king in the north. He didn't list the other kings. Why is that? Well, because once Jeroboam died, his son took the throne. Nobody lasted more than a few months. 
They were just killing each other. Boom, 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 boom. Until 722 came and they were gone, taken away by Assyria. But Hosea, from the book, I will tell you, is from the north. He's talking from the northern perspective. He's talking to the kings. But it's during these reigns because he does bring in Judah here. So that gives you an idea who he's talking to. And here's the word I want you to understand when we understand this context. So we know the names and the dates, great. It was a time of great wealth. GDP was very high in both the north and the south. In 2 Kings chapter 15, or actually 2 Kings chapter 14, Jeroboam had actually taken over Damascus. I think down to Elot, he, he, he recovered territory for Israel. And so they, they recovered it, and, and, and they began to amass great wealth. Jonah the prophet was right there during this time. Jonah went and subdued the Ninevites. So your big enemy from the north, they're taken care of. Jonah took care of them. Meanwhile, Uzziah is a man to be feared. I like what the text says in 2 Chronicles. He made engines of war that skillful men created. First place of weapons of mass destruction without regulation, right there. And, and, and everybody was afraid and paid tribute. It was a time of great prosperity during this entire That's Hosea's preaching. That's important to know. And when times are good, you think God is blessing, right? God is blessing. That's always the thinking. God blesses those who obey. So now we know what we're dealing with. Let's get on to it. Verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take for yourself a wife inclined to infidelity and children of infidelity, for the land commits flagrant infidelity, abandoning the Lord. Oh, so we see the reason is the land, but you know that's not what's going on. What's going on is you will go marry this woman who is inclined to infidelity, adultery, and you will have children of the same. That's the command. This is not metaphorical. Yes, there's a reason why, because he, he doesn't just say, I want to take it out on you, Hosea. No, no, no. There's a reason behind it. And Hosea, this is one of these interesting things that we would have difficulty with. I want you to do something. I'm not telling you. That, the reason is something bigger than you. It's over here. It's outside of this. But your life is going to be torn to shreds just so that we can see it. That's what he's asking. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. We see here that the first son is his. Is his. And so he gets a son, and the Lord said to him, now here's what your name's going to be. Typically the dad names the, the child. And the Lord said to him, name him Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I'll break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Jezreel comes from the Hebrew word, Yatser, which means seed, or Serah, which means seed. Jezreel, in Hebrew they don't have a J, it's a, it's a Y sound, so it sounds a lot like Israel. And Hosea had to say, Come again? You mean name him Israel? No, 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 no. Jezreel. That name, Jezreel, means to scatter. Because I'm going to punish 
the house of Jehu. Jeroboam was the third in line or the third son, the third grandson, third, third generation from a king named Jehu, who was a vicious warlike king, but with zeal for the Lord. He wiped out Baal worship. And he did it by wiping most everybody out. He didn't care about collateral damage. God said, you will only have sons to the fourth generation. So I'm now going to show Israel. You don't build the kingdom by wiping out the enemies. You only wipe out who I tell you to wipe out, and you wipe it out to that level with compassion. So I'm going to do that. You can find about it and find out about it in 2 Kings chapter 10, verses 11 and 30, and 2 Kings 15, verse 12. That's where God said, it's going to stop at your sons. And you're going to name them scattered. Okay, so Hosea's on this path like, oh, okay, that's not a great name, but I've, I got my wife, and she's really pretty, and I've got my son. I wonder how this is going to work out. Verse 6, then she conceived again. Doesn't say that he begot her. She conceived and gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Name her Lo Ruamah. It means no pity, unloved, no compassion. For I will no longer take pity on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. But I will take pity on the house of Judah and save them by the Lord their God and will save them, and will not save them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. He says, I will take pity on the house of Judah. And he gives a prophetic statement here saying that, but I will save them by the Lord and not by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. What's he talking about? He's talking about Assyria coming after 701. Read about the book of Isaiah when they had Jerusalem surrounded, and God even told Isaiah, no one's going to shoot an arrow in here. You're going to be okay. And the angel of the Lord went out and killed 185,000 Assyrians on the spot. As one pastor said, one morning, 185,000 Assyrians woke up dead. That's what he's saying right here. So he's prophesying that that's happening, but not with northern Israel. No compassion. Now, when she had weaned Lo-Ruamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. Again, no indication who the father is. And the Lord said, name him Lo-Ami, because you are not my people, but I am not your God. Wow, two names that really come to heart with no compassion. Later in the text, it really does seem like they're not his. But he's going to raise them. But here in this first chapter, we see a little bit of hope. So we're just taking in the experience of what's happening. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or counted. Wow, that, that sounds different than not my people. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah will, and, and the sons of Israel will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one leader and they will go up from that day for the day of Jezreel will be great. But now he's not talking about be great like disaster. It's going to be great. Oh, when's that going to happen? Well, if you're Hosea, you say, that's great for Israel. <laughs> but what about my family? I mean, God put me in this situation. What's the situation of his family? Well, I want us to look at chapter 2 because that is the life story. 
The command to have the kids, we just read. That's pretty basic. Three children. One for sure is Hosea's. Two, we don't know. Names are not that would ever be picked. That's what we know, and God has given a little bit of a glimmer of hope. But now we see this, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Say to your brothers, Emmy, and your sisters, Ruamah. That means my people and compassion. Say to them, who I just talked to you about. But here's what I want you to do. Dispute with your mother. Dispute because she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. But she must remove her infidelity from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Chapter 2 is going to have two pictures. One is Hosea's and one is God's. One is going to be Hosea's grief, and the other is going to be God's grief. Because this is for sure Hosea's grief. It's a story about a family that was headed for ruin. It was designed for ruin. Hosea comes home, opens the door. There's Jezreel in the corner. Diaper on, but no shirt. But he's over there in the corner kind of looking. And then you got low Ruaman, low Ami at the table kind of sitting there. You guys eating? No. No one to make us food. Other than eat, we're here. Dark. Where's your mom? Haven't seen her in the last week. She's you're looking at you. And you're seeing we, we've got to do something. So he's saying, dispute with your mother. She's run off. She's not my wife. I'm obviously not her husband now. She's had infidelity. Just even going on to get the picture here, verse 4, also I'll take no pity on her children. Why? Because they are children of infidelity. There you go. Children that you know are not yours. And it's in your face. And, and, and these are my kids i got to raise. And this is what God told me I'm supposed to do. This is what God told me where I'm headed. They know who their father is. They've talked about it. We see here in verse 6, Hosea spent some time trying to hedge her in. Therefore, behold, I will obstruct her way with thorns, and I will build a stone wall against her so that she cannot find her pass. I know this is God, and God is sounding talking here, but it's through Hosea's life. So what's happening for God and what he's going to do is happening with Hosea. But you know what? That didn't happen first. The obstruction doesn't happen first. What happens first is verse 5. For their mother has constitution. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. You know what? She's provided for. She's got lots. Now, I know we think, well, yeah, she, she went and found some guy with a lot of money, and she, she went and just left Hosea and said, I'm, I'm going to marry up. But she's realizing that when you do that, I like what one commentator said, you know, when you, when you choose not to go God's way, 
you never get where you're going, and you pay all the freight. But when you go where God wants you to go, you will get there. And you know what? You find out that God pays. You can handle it. You understand. What do we see out of this? Verse 5, she was provided for. But you know what verse 8 says? Or excuse me, verse, yeah, verse 8 says, Yet she does not know that it was I myself who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Yeah, they used for Baal, but Hosea, what did your wife do? Hosea went and bought groceries. He bought food. He bought meat. He bought these things and then went to go find out, and it was, hello? Who are you? Yeah, I'm looking for Gomer. What do you want? Who are you? I'm Hosea. I'm, I'm her husband. Okay, now we got to fight, right? But what does Hosea say? No, 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 relax, relax. Here, I just want her to have these. I want her to have vegetables. I want her to have meat. I want her to have bread. Anything else you need, you can let me know. I'm giving it to her. Okay, are you done? Yeah, I'm done. Okay. I'm heisty, right? You can, you can take a hike. What does he do? He goes back into Gomer. Just got back from the market. Look what I got. Oh, you're so wonderful, darling. You're so wonderful to provide for me like this. Watch him. Just around the corner. The embrace. Oh, food. Oh, special. What I really like. She does not know. She does not know that it was I myself who did this. This is what Hosea is going through. At this time, we're ready to say, you can have a biblical divorce, right? We want to get into our biblical divorce, remarriage kind of discussions at that point. You've met with your elders, you're fine. But that's not what we see. We do see that, yes, she was stopped in verse 6, but she was also stopped in verse 9 with a therefore there. Therefore, I'll take back my grain at harvest time, my new wine in its season. I will also take away wool, my flax that I give to cover her nakedness. I'm taking it away. So we see that. So that, basically, in verse 14, as he pursues her, I'm going to persuade her, bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. I'm going to go after her and bring her back, but I'm going to first stop her from her infidelity. That's Hosea's life. How do you preach about somebody who's got this kind of a life that God told him you're going to have and you will obey? And you're going to go through the pain, the anguish. Kids not yours, you will love them. You will feed them. You'll provide for Gomer and let other people take the credit so that she loves them. That is Hosea's grief. What is God here? It's exactly the same, isn't it? He raised up Israel. They quickly not only ran after Baal worship, they quickly ran after to burn their children in the fire to sacrifice to Baal. And when the rain and the fertility came, they praised Baal, not God. And he just kept on 
I gave you my word so that you would know me. I gave you my, my, my blessing, my protection, so that you would know me. Israel only knew others. Yet what is spoken up here is a restoration of Israel from verse 14, and specifically a key verse here, verse 20, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, then you will know the Lord. Now, where's that going to be important? In a moment. But first, I want to, I want to take you to what happens is they get a name change in verse 23. I'll sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who did not have obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Now they'll say, you are my God. I'm gonna, I, I will, I'll bring you into the land and I will change you so that you will be united with me. And I'm going to give you name changes. Even Jezreel gets a name change. We see no change in the text because you know what? The word Jezreel has two meanings. It means to be scattered and it means to be planted because the word is sowing. Seed in the hand, I'm going to scatter you to the wind. You're now going to be Jezreel for planting. You're now no longer going to be no compassion, no pity. You're going to be loved. You're not going to be not my people. You're going to be my people. There's a name change. How does that happen? It happens when Hosea's grief changes to Hosea's grace right here. Chapter 3. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet is committing adultery. Get that? Go love her, yet... Look at the words. Yet is right now committing adultery. Now go love her. That's what he says. Okay. Knock on the door. See the guy there. You're going to go get her. So I purchased her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. Now why all that? Well, because she's on the chopping block. She's on there, the slave block. You know, when you, when you leave and go off of God's way, well, that guy doesn't want you. He left you for somebody else, younger and prettier. So now you got, you got to go second rate. So you start with a fur coat, then you go with a faux fur coat, and now you're going, well, I just want to have one of those nice big ski jackets, and then you're just kind of moving down. And pretty soon you got to sell everything you own, and you're on the slave block. Hosea is right there with the crowd as they're all looking. And when they sold slaves, they sold them naked, especially the women. It's not just the woman. No, 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 no. Up there naked, paraded. So it's, she's embarrassed. And, and the guy, if he's a family man, especially, is, is one to bid for. He's embarrassed, but he won't say it. They're bidding. 10, 12. I'll go 15. 15 and a homer barley. 15 and a homer and a and lead check. That's what I got. Take her. He took everything out of his pockets. Then I said to her, you shall not live with me for many days. You shall not play the prostitute, nor shall you have another man. He's purifying her. So I will be also toward you. And now we get to God's grief, to God's grace. 
For the sons of Israel will live for many days without king or leader, without sacrifice or memorial stone, without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will meet the Lord and David their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and his goodness in the last days. There he is. That's the payment. They will seek their king, David, to come in Christ. That is a messianic passage right there. That's the price. And this is what God does to secure them. God goes from his grief in what they did in their idolatry to his grace right here. Chapter 3, a picture of what it actually feels like. And understand this. Solomon knew I, he, he knew adultery. Proverbs 6, verse 35, what does that tell us? It tells us adultery is the one thing nobody forgives. Man steals, repays seven times. Adultery? They're not going to forget. What happens here? You go while she's committing adultery. And you love. And you provide. And you care. And it will be as if it doesn't. That's the picture. That's the picture. So in our brief time, let's look at the real application that we can get out. We can't get it through going through all these chapters. But there are three very important verses. And I say they're important because they're actually quoted by the New Testament. Quoted to by the New Testament in, in, in key passages that we can learn from this. We see here that Hosea went from grief to grace. We see that God went from grief to grace. From grief to love to grace. The waters of God's grace first flow from the mountain of grief that we give him. And they flow down that mountain filling an ocean of love that gives unmeasurable water pressure for the fountain of grace to shoot out. But how did that ocean get there? In our, with who we are, there's a mountain of grief, the turbulent waters of love flowing over that to fill this ocean. What kind of grief are we talking about? Because that's really what, the, what this sermon is. It's the answer to the question I just gave it to you. What comes as the original source of God's grace? It's his grief. It's his grief. Of with enemies. Romans 5, 6, 8, and 10 tell us what? While we were yet enemies, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet. While we were adulterers. That's when he came after us. While we were provoking. Look at this. See, you didn't do anything about it. That's when it came. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. We're going to see basically the path of grief, and then we're going to get to grace. First verse, chapter 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. It's interesting, it starts with verse 1. Listen to the word of the Lord, you sons of Israel, because the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. Here's what they're doing. 
no knowledge of God in the land. And when you have no knowledge of God, here's the result. Oath-taking, denial, murder, stealing, adultery, violence, bloodshed, the land mourns. You want to talk about what's in the news and all the people worried about it? Oh, yeah, look at crime, environment. There's no knowledge of God. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Since you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being my priest. Why? Since you have forgotten the law of your God. So you don't know God by just your experience. Everybody would have a whole different picture of God, right? He put it in his word for us so we can see it objectively and then measure experience against what he said and say, wow, that's God. Knowledge of God started in the garden when Adam and Eve first knew each other. The Hebrew word really for intimate relations between husband and wife is the word to know. Adam knew his wife Eve. Intimacy is knowledge. Intimacy is knowing about. And God is throwing himself at us to say, know me, know me, know me. What are you doing with that, by the way? What are you doing with his effort to put himself in front of you to say, here I am, do you know me? Adam and Eve knew each other, but you know what happened after they sinned? They had shame. And now they don't even want to know each other. He might see this about me. She might see this about me. I can't let this be known. You get your fig leaf, I'll get my fig leaf, and we'll just kind of hide behind those deals, right? And then they both hid for God. They didn't want to know him. They didn't want him to know them. Knowing God is what? It's understanding that he's omnipotent, which means she's omniscient, which means he knows everything about you. He knows what's in your heart. He knows what's in your head, your memories. He knows what sins you thought about yesterday, but kind of we're kind of past that. Oh, he knows every time. He knows when you said, "Well, God won't see this." Fortunately, there's no consequences. He sees that, and it angers us. And so we create our own views of God. We don't want knowledge of God in His Word. We would like to say, let me tell you about God. Let me, let me just explain it with my narrative. Romans 1.18 says, we suppress the truth about God. Psalm 29, verse 15 says, he can't see me and know what I'm doing. Psalm 50, verse 21, very impactful verse I read long ago. It's hit me. You thought I was altogether like you. Is that your view of God, similar to how you think and act? And that's how you begin to describe him? I just want to know thing about, one thing about being in Africa. You don't mistake a rhino for an elephant, okay? A rhino can sit right there by your car. You're fine. An elephant is likely to pick it up and throw it. You don't, when you see an elephant, you keep the car in gear, and you keep it forward, and you keep an empty space. Otherwise, you'll find yourself on YouTube. Knowledge of the Holy One. That's what Proverbs 9, verse 10 says. That's the fear of the Lord and knowledge of the Holy One. Well, there's a lot of pictures that we have. Uh, just one to give you in Job. Just I'm going to explain it to you when we move on. 42, we know that Job had a big issue with what was going on. Why am I being persecuted? And just to give you a quick um, summary, the book of Job is not really about Job. It's about God proving Satan wrong because Satan is the one who made the accusation. 
See, you only bless when they worship. He only worships because you bless. But really, let's see. And what Job learned after they had all these chapters of discourse about God and who he is and what he does, and Job can't figure it out because it's not making sense what they say, and he's starting to not make sense himself, God shows up and explains to Job, you're right, apart from divine revelation, nobody knows anything about me. That is the book. Apart from divine revelation, you got nothing. Which is why we say Job is the first book written, right? Because after Job came what? Moses. Oh, you need divine revelation. I got it coming. But what Job figured out in chapter 38, Job show, or God shows up. Terrifying. Oof, he comes at. And then Job says something in chapter 40 after the first discourse. He's like, okay, I get it. I get it, God. <laughs> Enough. I got it. I am too small to deal with you. You are big. You're suffering. I'd say, this always threw me until I just, after studying, I figured this out with a little help from Dr. Chow and his notes, which, by the way, master's people, you better take Job. An amazing class. We took it ourselves in Africa on, a, on an app. He's saying, you're big, I'm not. What does God say? Pull your britches up. Get your socks up. We're not done yet. And you think, wow, is that God? Is that God? He just, you, you've just irritated me enough. I'm going to keep coming and bring it on. So you think, you, you, you kind of don't understand chapter 4. It's like, uh, and you go, no, it's because Job hasn't understood yet. God is discipling him to get to the point. Because Job's question is, but how do I deal with evil? I mean, what happens? Do I just, is it random? What's going on with you? He says this. He doesn't say you're big, I'm small anymore. What he says is, I've spoken things too wonderful for me to understand. And what does God say next? He goes, great, go make sacrifices for your friends. We're done. You're going to get restored, and they're now going to need your prayers. Otherwise, I kill them. What was it that Job got? Oh, I can't define you in my mind at all. You're right. You are good and a rewarder of those who seek him. Got it. What does God do? Immediately. On repentance, immediately you're restored. In Job's case, that was the point God was trying to make. I don't have knowledge of God. I need knowledge of God. He was brought to the point where he just craved that so much. This is Gomer. This is God's people. Is this familiar to you? Do you pursue knowledge of God to know him as he's throwing himself at you? Well, the second one is Hosea 6, verse 6. I'm going to rush through this, but you get the point. For I desire loyalty rather than sacrifice and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Next is his delight. His delight is what? Sacrifice, no, loyalty, chesed, everlasting love, mercy, loyalty. Jesus uses this in Matthew 9, Matthew 12 to explain, go and learn what this means. I desire sacrifice. Don't talk to me about washing my hands a certain way. Who is God? God says, I desire loyalty, not 
sacrifice. What does Jesus say in John 8, 29? For I always do the things that are pleasing to my Father. So what are his desires? Loyalty, not sacrifice. You know what this means in, in short? I can just give you the shortcut because we're out of time. It means it's always better to obey than it is to ask forgiveness. This is a very common saying we had in business. It's still around. It's everywhere. It's the world saying what? It's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. So go ahead and do it. Every boss says it. Get something done. Easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. Very common. It is in our culture. It's in everything. It's in the air we breathe. Just ask for forgiveness. You'll get it. But that way you, you push and you get it done, right? What's God say? That is absolutely opposite of where I am and who I am. I hate that. I want you to come with a desire to obey first and not ask me forgiveness later. That's what I desire. The whole chapter here is riddled with. And you guys, matter of fact, your repentance is so fake. Verse 4, what shall I do with you, Ephraim? What shall I do with you, Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. There is nibikirdesni. There is no repentance. It's just there like the mist. Because why? You, why you have knowledge of God? You don't, dis- you don't delight in what he delights. You know one thing I love? <laughs> My wife delights in what I delight in. Since we met. We meet. I'm a basketball referee. Guess what? She becomes a basketball referee. I'm into karate. He does karate. This woman's incredible. She even got me a new Bible for today. That is a wife who is saying, I delight in what you delight. Are you that way? Because this is Gomer. This is God's people. Is this you? Last verse. It'll kind of hinge into where where Brian's going to be going. 1 Corinthians 15, but in Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? Death, where are your thorns? Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. A lot of people wrestle over that. We'll let Paul translate it for us in 1 Corinthians 15, 40, 54, and 55. But when this perishable puts on the imperishable and this mortal puts on the immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O death, is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is God providing the Lord Jesus Christ for victory over death. Come, you're coming to heaven with me. You're coming, we're together, we're a family. I don't care where you've been, because why? Because when God sees you through the blood of Christ, it's not that it makes you clean as much as he doesn't see it at all anymore. That's all I see. I see Christ, and I see Christ in you. Man, that's what I'm, I'm excited about that. That's why there's more joy in heaven when one sinner repents, because now Christ has united, and that's what I see. And when I see that, I don't see sin. I don't see the past. I don't see history. I don't remember it. Why? Because all I see is Christ. That's God. Resurrection. God delights in giving us resurrection. Those who what? 
who delighted what he delights in. And I'll just tell you this. Our problem in America is everything is so much healthcare-oriented and, and education, long all that kind of stuff. So you don't long for heaven. We had a dear church member, cerebral palsy, Debbie Kutzier, in our church. Man, I know when I preached Revelation 20, we could turn the lights off because there was a huge light going on down there where she was in her wheelchair. Man, she wanted to hear that. Debbie Kutzier. Which, by the way, how God works in missions, which is a very unusual thing, because of the cerebral palsy community, she was able to minister to the largest cult in South Africa, to the head of the largest cult in Southern Africa, called the Zion Christian Church, ZCC. Why? Because they had a daughter who's got cerebral palsy. And now the question came, how do you do it? How do you survive? And she just gave this, gave this great... Just gospel as well, the Lord is, can you come to our house? So Debbie Courtsier in a wheelchair goes up to Zanine, up there where they're staying in the mountain. There's not one, I'll just, I have to say it here, I don't know how to do it. But because it's, it's an African denomination, there's not one white person that can be anywhere within miles of that place. Because that's just how it is. Where it is. Denomination is very rooted in that particular culture where they are. No missionary could go there. Nobody who's not really truly an African that speaks Sepeti or the other languages that are there can go there, except Debbie. How's she armed? She's armed in a wheelchair. <laughs> She's armed in a wheelchair, can't speak very well, but boy, they strain to hear her. And yet, with all that success, and uh, you know what? Oh, boy, Lord, take me today. Because that is grace unmatched. So bottom line, This is Gomer. This is Hosea. This is God's people with God. Do you see God's grace? But it does flow from a mountain of grief. This is why Hosea writes, and I want you to see this, the very last verse. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but wrongdoers will stumble in them. This is a man who married a prostitute, and his kids weren't his. And he writes this, you better read this if you want to be wise. What is the source of God's grace? We know it's love, but what comes before love? It flows down a mountain of grief. We don't see that that we cause, but how big does that make God? when he has a mountain of grief to flow out a fountain of grace that goes way beyond the mountain. Deepest grief leads to insane love, leads to lavish grace. Marvelous grace seeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, more where the blood of the lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, Grace that is greater than it. When we understand that, how big is our God? And for those who have family and people understand that have great marital difficulty, this is a book that is of great hope and encouragement. Because I know marriages all over the place are going through many like this. And you know what? There is great hope. It's never despair. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you. You give us this picture which shows your heart to us. Forgive us when we diminish our admiration, our desire to look long into your love. Even though angels continue to look long at that, we fall short, we fall asleep. But we know, Lord, through Christ, we ask forgiveness, it's been done. And we know as we cling to him, you see and look at us with great delight. As we saw Hosea take his wife Gomer again, and you will take your nation Israel again. And you've taken us while we were yet enemies, sinners, and godless to give us that insane love that leads to grace upon grace. In Christ's name, amen.